Thank you so much, Josh. Really do appreciate that. And just before we start, let's 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 pray. Lord, we just want to thank you that um, that you have given us your word, and and that in your word you have given us these these small stories, these parables that have such a a deep meaning, such a, a, a such important um, lessons for for each and every one of us. Lord, you had a a lesson there for that lawyer. You had a lesson there for your disciples and the people that were listening in, and and you have a lesson in that story for us that is profound. And so, Lord, we pray that as we spend a little bit of time looking at the story, that you will you will speak to our hearts, you'll speak to our minds, and that you will move us this evening to be more like you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So. My name is Jeremy. Uh, one or two of you know me. I'm one of the elders at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky. We have three children. Joel, who's 18, he's at uh, the Uni of Nottingham and uh, looking to be coming home next Sunday. Caitlin, who's 16 and is in year 12 at, at Fairfax and Isaac, who's nine and in year five at the Deanery. And some of you will have known that that I studied graphic design before setting out into the, the big wide world. And part of that qualification was a, a course in art history and, and then design history, possibly the, the highlight of my week. It was two lectures a week and, and then research and, and essays. And what was ironic is uh, I chose not to continue with history at school. I, I despised it. I, I just couldn't get the facts in the right order uh, or the right century, never mind the decade. Anyway, despite that, I learned some interesting things and um, I learned about some very interesting artists. I remember a particular one, Francisco de Goya. He was a, a court portrait artist. He painted, amongst other things, um, subjects of uh, he, other subjects, uh, he painted pictures of the royal family. So, what made Goya stand out was his approach to royal portraiture. You see, most artists who were supported by royalty went to great pains to, to flatter their subjects. Remember, this wasn't taking a photograph. A painting was taken over, uh, was, was produced over a long time. And the subjects weren't standing there still the whole time. The, the, the artist got to know them and, and did a lot of um, studies before finalizing the, the final composition. But so they had a lot of time to kind of iron out the details and, and look for the best in their subjects. But, but Goya didn't do that. He, he went for, for a very candid picture of, of royal families. And let's be honest, royal families in the 17 and 1800s were not necessarily as good looking as they seem in a lot of the paintings that we see or, or perhaps even some of the, the shows that we watch on telly. Um, so, so yeah, he painted them as they came, warts and all, literally. And, and this is one of the most famous ones. This is the, the family of Charles or Carlos IV of Spain. And um, at first you look at it and you think, oh, well, it's a, it's a standard family portrait. But start looking a little closer and you'll, you'll see some of the characters um, staring off into the distance. Be here. You, you see King Charles himself, if you look closely at his face, is eyes are ever so slightly wonky and I can tell you Goya was was well in control of his brush shall we say so if his eyes were wonky 
it's probably not because Goya couldn't paint. Um, and then if you look at Grandma over on the left, you'll see that, that he's left a, a skin um, lesion, very evident on her, her face. So, so Goya made a name for himself by being quite candid and, and frank about uh, the subject matter that he painted. Another thing I learned was that frames are a very important part of an art historian's investigation. You can find out much about a painting by looking at the frame. And you may wonder what on earth does this have to do with the preach tonight? But all will become clear. Just remember this. Portrait artists are gracious to their subjects, except for Goya. And that you need to look around a picture as much as at a picture if you want to understand its message properly. So we come to the last of the parables tonight that we're going to look at this year, the Good Samaritan. And like all of Jesus's parables, it's a very simple story which contains a, a, a big lesson. And like many, this one's big lesson is often missed. It's often missed by his original audience and it's often missed by us because of what seems to be plainly obvious in the lesson. So when we, we look at the Good Samaritan, there are definitely two main points that we can apply to our lives. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to start by looking at the one that we can see plainly, and then I'll dig a bit deeper into the genius of Jesus' engagement with the lawyer, which reveals the, the deeper intended lesson. And it's a, a beautiful example of engaging with your enemies graciously and challenging both those that are for you and against you at the same time. But first, the actual story. So the characters are not real people, but neither are they caricatures. They, they're, not, they're not representing a particular group. So the priest does not represent all priests, and the Samaritan does not represent all Samaritans. They, they are characters in a, a tale that was designed to drive home a very clear lesson in a very memorable way. There's a, a lot of detail and there's plenty of secondary implications, but the job for us today is to get to that main point, that central lesson that, that God wants to teach us. The story begins with a, a very dangerous road. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that's mentioned is a real road that exists to this day. If you go to Israel, you can travel on this, this road. And the journey takes you down about a 4,000 foot drop across 17 miles of windy road through very barren mountains and, and rough terrain. The road is lined in places with caves and boulders which offer hard outs for robbers. In places, it's bordered by a, a sheer drop rather than a, a shoulder to the road. And in Jesus' story, this is the place where a man who was traveling alone gets attacked by a, a bunch of thieves who were particularly violent. They didn't just rob him. They stripped him almost naked. They took everything he had and then they beat him and they left him to die on the side of the road. Now, there were, were times of the year when this road was fairly busy around the feasts. But in other seasons, like in the heat of summer, 
or the middle of winter or in the windy season, there would be very, very little traffic on it. There were no homes along the road and there were very few services, if you want to call it that, places where you can get refreshments and provisions. So it was not the best situation, especially for someone who, who was alone and desperate. Someone may never come by to, to help them. And it's at this point that Jesus introduces a little hope. He says, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And at first, this seems to be good news. Here comes a servant of God, one who's responsible for the sacrifices in the temple. He's a spiritual man who should be full of compassion. He's the best of men in Israel. A priest who should be very familiar with the Mosaic law. And as he comes around the corner, surely he has in his mind Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he would be very aware of the expounding of that command in verses 33 and 34. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. But that hope is, is short-lived. When the priest saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. The priest deliberately and intentionally moved over to the other side of the road. He went out of his, out of his way to avoid the traveller. He obviously had no compassion for people in distress, or at least not enough to move him to mercy. The priest in the story represents anyone with, with full knowledge of the scriptures and a familiarity with the, the duties of the law who is expected to help, but doesn't. And the very next verse introduces a Levite. Just a, a bit of an explanation. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only those who were directly descended from Aaron served as priests. So Levites are from the tribe of Levi, and Aaron was a son of Levi, and Aaron's descendants, male descendants, served as priests, and the rest um, still served in the temple, but in different, different functions. So, so this person was descended from Levi, but not from Aaron, and he could have been serving in a, a number of roles in the, in the temple. He could have been an assistant to the priest, he could have been uh, a member of the temple police, he could have been maintaining and serving the temple grounds, etc., etc. These the, the Levites' lives were, were dedicated to, to, um, to religious service from birth. And so, like priests, they were expected to have a, a good knowledge, a very good knowledge of the scriptures. And, and even so, when this Levite came across the wounded man, he did the same thing as the priest, and he intentionally walked over to the other side of the road. Another man with no compassion, or at least not enough, to move him to mercy. And with this story, and with the, the uh, behavior of these two characters in the story, Jesus turns the lawyer's question on its head. Remember when, when Josh was reading, the lawyer asked at the end of his set of questions to Jesus, who is 
my neighbour? But that is not the right question. Jesus is, is showing him that, that righteous compassion is, is not narrow. It does not need a definition of, of which people are qualified to deserve help. The second commandment is not defined by the question of who our neighbour is. In fact, it is the very opposite. Genuine love compels us to be neighbourly, even to strangers and enemies. They are our neighbours too. We are obliged to bless them. We are obliged to do good to them and to pray for them, regardless of how we feel they have treated us or treated the things or the people that we love. So these two characters represent their culture's best educated and most highly esteemed religious dignitaries. They were deeply educated in God's teachings, yet they, they did not really know God himself. It's right, of course, for us to, to look on these two men and, and their deliberate avoidance of this traveller with, with a fair amount of disgust. It's right for us to do that, but we need to also be honest with ourselves, because when we do that to them, we condemn ourselves as, as well. Their attitude is exactly what we see in human nature today, even, even in this very compassionate age compared to the age that Jesus walked in. How many times a month do we in our hearts say, I'm just going to step onto the other side of the road. I don't want to get involved. We may not turn away every time, but we do often enough to stand condemned before the law. And then enters the Samaritan. He is an unexpected twist in, in Jesus' story. Sometime after the priest and the Levite had passed, the Samaritan arrives on the scene. And unlike the, the two holy men, he had compassion when he saw the injured traveler. And not just any compassion, this was like limitless compassion. The traveler would have been a Jewish man. This would have been clear to Jesus's listeners. Gentiles rarely traveled on this particular piece of road and far less so Samaritans. And in the minds of Jesus's audience, a Samaritan would have been the least likely source of help for this Jewish traveler in part because of that, that previous point that they would very rarely travel on that road. They would only travel there if it was an emergency and they were forced to. The other reason was that Jews and Samaritans despised each other. They despised each other for centuries. Jews used to take this particular road to Galilee precisely because they, they wanted to avoid going through Samaria even though it was a, a very serious detour to use this road. They could get directly to Galilee, but would have to go through Samaria, and therefore they completely avoided it and used this road. So here is a Samaritan man who would be assumed to have been the enemy of the injured traveler. If the priest and the Levite turned their backs, what would the Samaritan do? The assumption crowd would probably be kill him and, and rob his corpse. But on the contrary, when he saw him, 
he had compassion. What was Jesus trying to say with this character? In part, it was to point out that pure and undefiled religion before God does not consist of birthrights and bloodlines and rituals and confessions of faith, but pure religion is something else entirely. And in part, he was using a person that the lawyer most likely had in mind as not being a neighbor, a sworn enemy of the Jews. But instead of him being the beneficiary in the story, Jesus puts the enemy as the benefactor, the one being neighborly. Instead of, instead of answering the lawyer by, by showing a Jew being neighborly, he shows the enemy of the Jew being neighborly to a Jewish man. So how exactly did the Samaritan respond? Jesus says that he saw him. Now, there's, there's nothing different to the priest and the Levite there, but then he went to him. The priest and the Levite passed over onto the other side of the road intentionally. The Samaritan intentionally went to him. He saw the traveler, and in the seeing of the traveler, it resulted in a compassion inside of him that went out toward him. He saw and he felt the urgent need to rescue and recover him. He made the injured man's burdens his own. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, which acted as a, a sort of salve and an antiseptic. And these were his own provisions that he packed for his travels. He would have packed the oil for cooking and wine for drinking because on this particular road, the water would have been unsafe along the way. And Jesus makes a point of the, the liberality of his generosity. He, he wasn't using his provisions sparingly. He was covering and washing. He wasn't dabbing. And then he set him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a mule. So after looking after him at the scene, he puts him on his, his donkey and the Samaritan walks while the injured man rides and he brings him to an inn and takes care of him there. He didn't leave him alone there. He stayed with him overnight and he personally ensured his recovery. He treated his wounds. He provided his food, his sleep, his water and whatever else the man needed. And the following day, he gives two denarii, which are the equivalent of two full days wages to the innkeeper. And that, that would have bought two months of room and board for, for the, the injured traveler. And then he promises to repay any extra expenses accrued while the man stays. Jesus is, Jesus is emphasizing that the Samaritan was, was not delivering minimum care here. He wasn't picking this person up and dropping him off with someone better qualified to look after him. He was going way beyond and he spared no expense or convenience to ensure that this Jew was cared for. It cost him time, it cost him money, it cost him resources. Some, and I would probably be one of them at times, would look at him and criticize him for naively exposing himself to the chance of being taken advantage of. But he was more concerned about the needs of his neighbor. 
In Jesus' account, the Samaritan didn't even question the traveller or try and investigate the situation. He just did everything he could to help. His heart was so full of love that there was never a question or, or a hesitation. Remember the lawyer's question again, and who is my neighbour? The Samaritan never stopped to ask that question. The question that the Samaritan asked was, whose neighbour am I? And the answer was, obviously, anyone in need. I think we need to stop at this point and be honest with ourselves for a moment. If, if we encountered a scenario like this in real life, most of us would probably think that the Samaritan's generosity towards a stranger seems excessive. I mean, have you, have you ever set aside everything, everything for a, a total stranger? And more to the point, have you ever done that for someone who was your sworn enemy? There is someone that you would have done all of these things for, and, and that someone is, is yourself. And that's kind of the point. That is, that is the way the Samaritan was looking after this enemy was the way that we look after our own needs or, or perhaps the needs of our very immediate family. You spend what you have on what you need. If, if you find yourself in a situation where you're, you're injured or, or ill, you find the best source of treatment and you get that for yourself. You, you, seek, you seek that out and you, and you take time out of your, your normal daily routine to recover and you make sure that you're cared for. But who would do that for a, a stranger and an enemy? Don't get me wrong, I have, I have no doubt that we have all done something wonderf wonderfully generous at times, but do we truly love strangers like this all of the time? Of course not. And I, I, I would um, be surprised if someone came back to me and said, I do. The kind of love that Jesus is describing here is very, very rare. A love that has no limits. And with that, now we, we need to go back to the original dialogue. We need to go back to that lawyer and look at the frame that set up this parable. Remember, the parable sits within a context. And if we're going to understand the primary lesson of the parable, we need to understand the context. I've heard it said many times that, that the story, the meaning of this parable is that we need to be like the Samaritan in our generosity and kindness to strangers. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But is that the main point? Is that really what Jesus was getting at? So a little bit about the context. Jesus here is in public and he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to them about sending them out on mission into different towns and he's saying to them that if you're rejected you must dust off your feet and go to a town that accepts you the pharisees are there they are uh, not impressed with what jesus is saying to his disciples and this lawyer is there as well and he's he's not a civil lawyer but a, a religious one he's like an expert in the mosaic law and he's associated very closely with the Pharisees and, 
And most likely he's looking for points, he's looking for a way to, to gain credibility and respect in the eyes of the Pharisees as well as, as the people. And so the lawyer sets out to elevate his stature by attempting to trap Jesus with a clever set of questions. And like all good lawyers, he starts off with a fair question. He starts off with, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, being very insightful, sniffs out that the question is insincere. I'm sure if it was sincere, he would have responded very differently. He would have preached the gospel. He would have said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He would have said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Or he would have said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the question was the beginning of a trap. The lawyer's heart was insincere, and so Jesus plays him at his own game. He answers the, law, the lawyer with his own question. What does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer, he responds perfectly. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The perfect summary of the law, the summary of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus tells him to go and do that, then he will inherit eternal life. Jesus essentially tells him, so you know the law, follow it meticulously and you will get what you want. In effect, what he does is he holds up a mirror with the law and he asks the lawyer to look at himself in it. You and I know that this is a, a futile quest. No one has completely obeyed the law. That's why there was the temple and the sacrifices to pay the price for sin. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins you didn't even know about or sins that you weren't aware of or sins that you committed by not doing stuff or doing stuff intentionally and explicitly. If this lawyer was humble and was honest about himself, he would have been able to say to Jesus, but then there is, there is no hope for me, for I know that I do not love God in the way that the law requires. I know that I do not love people in the way that is required. So if that is what is required, I'm hopeless. Who can rescue me and throw himself at Jesus's mercy. But he doesn't do that. He gets defensive. He seeks to justify himself, the, the word says. And he enters into this hair-splitting argument about the definition of a, a neighbor. Instead of going uh, for, for some of the, the, the bit around how you need to love God, he decides, okay, well, let's play with the definition of neighbor. And who is my neighbor? So this parable then is, is Jesus' very gracious response to this very arrogant man. This is Jesus painting a, a portrait which tells a very clear picture to a man that is in many ways his enemy. In an effort to reach him and to touch his heart and to, to show him the magnitude of what the law is expecting from him. So Jesus uses this parable 
to illustrate two things. He uses it to illustrate what God means by love your neighbor as yourself. And he uses it to illustrate that your bloodline and your birthright is not going to get you off the hook for not obeying him. And the parable does its job to a degree with the lawyer. It defeats the lawyer's trap by ending with this question. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer can only answer in one way. But he doesn't even call him a Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer should have been absolutely broken when Jesus then says to him, you go and do likewise. He should have been devastated because he knew full well that it was not good enough to go and do that once to fulfill the requirements of the law. He would need to love like that all the time. So the lawyer should have begged for mercy at this point. It doesn't seem that he did. And the truth is, for each and every one of this, uh, us, this holds true. Even the Christian into whose hearts Romans says the love of God has been poured out, does not consistently love like the Lord demands. And here is the deeper lesson. The way that the Good Samaritan cared for the traveller is the way that God loves all people, even those who despise him. When I look at the story and I, I imagine Jesus telling it, I imagine him looking forward in time and seeing the moment that he goes to the cross and he carries the burden of our sin on his shoulders. And I can see how he's painting a picture of what he is doing for us while he's telling this parable. You see, the Samaritans sacrificed time and money to care for a wounded enemy. But God gave his own eternal son to die for sinners who deserve nothing. What Christ did to redeem his people goes way beyond this benevolent act that is, is pictured here, this very rare, limitless love that we see in the Samaritan. He is the, the living embodiment of divine love in all its perfection. He fulfilled the law completely. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law during his earthly life. He is spotless. He is sinless. And then in his death, he bore the penalty of sin for others, for his enemies. And then he gives his perfect, unblemished righteousness to all who surrender and call him Lord and Savior. And they inherit eternal life, not on their own merit, but purely by grace. So I'm going to end there, but in the light of the season we're entering into, there are a few things that, that we, can, we can consider now. Firstly, if love came down to us in Christ when he was born, we can ask now, what do we now do with that love? Without condemnation, because we're not like the lawyer, we are now seated in heavenly places with Christ, 
We are living in eternal life and out of a deep sense of appreciation and gratitude, how can we spread that love far and wide? What does it look like to be a good Samaritan today? We, we're very good at this as a church. I mean, we're, we're actually brilliant as a church. We give money, we give food, we give people to serve those less fortunate. I'm sure we could do more, but, but I think we're doing very well. But th with this parable, Jesus didn't have organized charity in mind. He was talking about neighborliness, an attitude of your heart as an individual, an attitude of my heart as an individual. And I think sometimes we can hide behind all of the brilliant things that we do as a church. It makes it a bit easier to feel good about ourselves. But the, the question today is, how is your heart? How is your heart towards strangers, towards your enemies, towards those that are, are less fortunate than yourself and need your care? How do you measure up against the Samaritan? In a moment, we're going to spend a little bit of time doing business with God. And I don't, this is not about me giving you answers, but spend time doing business with God. Ask him. In this story, how do I measure up? What do I do over this season and in this, this time to, to be more like the Samaritan? Ask him, what is it that stops me? I'm sure you already know the answers. They're probably coming up right now. Is it, is it fear? Is it uncertainty? I, I don't know what I, I should do. Is it inconvenience? Are you on your way somewhere and, and you're late? You don't have any cash or, or you're afraid of the, the backstory and you don't want to get too involved in all of that. God sees all of those reasons and he sees the attitude of your heart. And let's just do that. Let's spend a few moments talking that through with God, asking him to reveal those obstacles and, and asking him to show us how to overcome them. And then I want to challenge you to do, do one thing this week one thing that is more like the Samaritan than you would normally do. And then secondly, do you need to hear Jesus's deeper lesson again, that he is the good Samaritan in the story? And the unfortunate man could well have been the lawyer if he was sincere in his questioning. And it could also be you. Do you need to hear that, that Jesus sees you and that he comes to you and that he picks you up and he pours wine over your wounds and oil and he cares for you and he puts you on his animal and he takes you to an inn and he spends the night with you looking after you and making sure that you recover. And then he pays for everything that you need to be fully restored to health and, and victory and to a life that is worth living. Are you in a place where you, you, you feel like, God, I need help right now? And let's, so let's do that. Let's, let's spend a bit of time. Philippa, if you can lead us, I'll just pray to start and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. So, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that you've brought us to a parable at a season where it is clearly evident that 
that you are the one that, that loves us limitlessly with a love that, that cannot be comprehended. And Lord, right now, I pray that you help us to do business with you. Either in knowing and understanding who you are in our lives and how you care for us. Or knowing how we can express that love to the people around us that need us desperately. How do we reflect your love in the society around us, especially at this time when we're, we're, we're dealing with a pandemic as, as well as a holiday season? We ask that you speak to us now, Jesus.